Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebod, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They're the backdrop for our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how can we work together to design a better world. In this episode, I will be speaking with writer Henry Grabar on the hidden significance of parking and its profound impacts on the design of our cities. We will explore the misguided policies that led to our car-centric culture and the ways we can shift towards a future that prioritizes people over parking. But before I begin my conversation, I would like to tell you a little bit more about my guest. Henry Grabar is a 2024 Lowe Fellow at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. Since 2016, he's been a staff writer at Slate Magazine, where he writes the Metropolis column that focuses on housing, transportation, and the environment. His work has also been published in Architect, The Atlantic, The Guardian, Harper's, and The Wall Street Journal, to name a few. He was the editor of The Future of Transportation Anthology, and most recently, he's the author of Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World, that was just published this May by Penguin Press. Henry, welcome to On Cities. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Thanks for having me. So Henry, I often begin by asking my guests about their formative years, because I'm curious to know if that period in one's life helps shape your vision or your understanding of the world. So Henry, where did you grow up and was this a car-centric environment? Well, I grew up in New York City in lower Manhattan. So I think I grew up in about as un-car-centric an environment as exists in the United States um, that said, there were several parking lots within um, a stone's throw of my parents' apartment. And I remember them principally not as parking lots, but as flexible spaces that always turned into something else. Like one of them, I used to play catch with my dad. And another one uh, turned on Saturdays into a flea market where you could walk around and find cool stuff. And another one on the Lower East Side, not that I was old enough to appreciate this, but started a program called Shakespeare in the Parking Lot, which is a sort of play on words in reference to Shakespeare in the Park, which is a famous New York City theatrical production. So it wasn't an environment that was completely absent of parking. My parents did have a car, tree parked in a garage. But I think it did give me a firm idea of what a city looks like, one that um Later, when I started visiting, well, most American downtowns, I began to feel like, well, where is everybody? Where is everything? And why are there so many parking lots everywhere? Hmm. So I'm curious, what brought you to write about the topic of parking? Maybe it's not, let's say, the sexiest topic, but it's actually one of the most fundamental themes that shapes our world. So what what brought you to write about this topic? No, it's the least sexy topic. And <laughs> I think that was honestly one of the things that drew me to it was that there hadn't been a book that um, approached this subject for a lay reader. There are several um, several books, and, and some of them are actually quite engaging, put out by academic presses that confront the issue of parking, um, but none in the category of narrative nonfiction, character-based stories that um, take you through some of the aspects of this uh, field, but also introduce you to the people who whose lives are shaped by parking. And that's what I was trying to do in this book. So not having, um, you know, feeling like this was going to break new ground was certainly a motivator to, to do this book. Of course, once I started, I realized the reason that no one's written a book about parking is because parking is, uh, it's not just not sexy, it's its hard to make it charismatic. I mean, we all are familiar with parking spaces. There, There's no design there, there's no character, there, there's no 
um, particularly interesting quality to the way they're built or, or anything like that. But, you know, the the other thing was that you mentioned that I wrote a column for Slate for many years. And in my column, I would write about subjects like transportation policy and architectural design and affordable housing and the environment. And in subject after subject, I would find that there was this big topic lurking at the heart of whatever I was writing about. And that topic was parking. And it, it often felt like it is it actually an instrumental factor in determining the way things wound up looking, but had never really been um, approached across different fields in this manner. Yeah. And I'm, I, having read the book, I would highly recommend it um, because I think it can appeal to academics, but it is really um, accessible to all. And I think more people need to read it so that you understand how parking is really shaping much of America's built environment and what we could do to maybe change that. So for those that are not familiar with this history, Henry, can you share what misguided forces shaped the making of our car-centric world? I think the the... The most important thing when we talk about parking is the amount of space it takes up. Um, I think this this is something that probably just not something people often think about, but um, uh, you, you know the the typical size that you get quoted for a parking space is about two hundred fifty or three hundred square feet, and so what that means is that when you think about that on a city level. And you think about accommodating all these cars at that level of space provided per car, what you're talking about in some sense, you talk about parking is actually the greatest impact of car culture on the city. So uh, in, in spatial terms, right, it's not the roads. Um, it's actually the storage of the vehicles that constitutes the biggest impact of car culture. And I think we're all vaguely conscious that car culture has reshaped the way that the uh, city looks. But when you actually drill down into it, the biggest factor um, included in that in that bucket is is definitely parking. Yeah, I mean, I guess in America in particular, many of these ideas come about after the Second World War, principally, let's say 1950s, right? With these kind of highway acts that would decentralize the city right? Moving large par- large uh, portions of the population to the suburbs, right? And then these um, this population would then commute, right? To the city centers. Um, and then, of course, America made the access to mortgages particularly easy. So the kind of American dream of owning your own home out in the suburbs with a car or two, you know, became the standard. So I think what your book shed, you, you know, your, your book outlines this history. Um, and then, you know, if we're going to reverse this reality, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this in detail, then it seems to me that we're going to have to think more broadly about the policies that placed us in this position to begin with, and perhaps what are new policies that we have to be adopting to be able to reverse those trends. Um, but you, in in the book, you you dedicate a chapter to the notion of free parking. Um, and I think everybody's heard the saying that there's no such thing as free lunch as a free lunch. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what the high cost consequences of free parking in the city are? Sure. So the most famous book about parking ever published was Donald Shoup's um, seminal textbook, The High Cost of Free Parking. Now, Donald Shoup is an urban planner at University of California, Los Angeles. Go figure that a guy who lives and works in Los Angeles would um, come away with a a strong interest in parking studies. And in the high cost of free parking, uh, Shoup lays out the reasons that free parking is essentially um, a terrible policy. and, and, And there are several. And I think the biggest one probably is just generally speaking that it constitutes a massive hidden subsidy for car ownership. Um, so that's a pretty big one in the sense that if you provide free parking and indeed mandate free parking, as many cities do, um, you are distorting the choices that people make uh, right off the bat in terms of whether they decide to drive on a car, use transit, bike, et cetera. And this goes back to the things you were just talking about, right? The federal investment in highways, the mortgage interest deduction, um, all these hidden policies have 
sort of work together to subsidize a version of American suburbia that is mistakenly often characterized as being a kind of choice, right? But it's in fact deeply socially engineered by all of these policies that stack the deck in favor of exactly that kind of development. Um, and, and parking policy is one of them, right? So uh, free parking not only functions as a subsidy, but it also um, distorts the urban environment. And I think that's another important feature. And then finally, um, when you talk about free parking at the curb, which most people are familiar with in, you know, whether it's a little main street or a residential neighborhood, um, you uh, introduce a system where what is often a relatively scarce resource is being inefficiently allocated. And this was another of Shoup's big points that um, parking at the curb ought to be distributed um, according to market pricing. Because when you make it free, people don't use it very efficiently. And in particular, the problem that emerges and has emerged for 100 years where there's free parking in busy places is that uh, employees tend to arrive early in the day and they park their car in front of the place they work and they leave their car there all day. And whenever people start showing up to shop at those businesses or have lunch at those restaurants or whatever it is, um, they find there's no place to park. And this is pretty much an inevitable natural consequence of free parking, right? It's first come, first served by definition. When in reality, I think one thing that we're beginning to realize more and more is that the curb is this really precious point of access between our streets and our buildings. And if you don't begin to think seriously about how that curb ought to be managed and allocated and which drivers ought to be able to park there when, um, then you wind up with a system where it simply ceases to function as a useful interface, right? And so that is another one of the consequences of free parking. And, and once that happens, drivers who show up looking for a space wind up driving around and around and around in circles um, until they can find an open space. And, and one of Don Shoup's famous studies was to look at a neighborhood with free parking and measure how much time drivers spent looking for a parking space compared to if those spaces has been, had been metered at a high enough price uh, to free up a spot on every block. And the contribution to traffic was just enormous. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of miles being driven every year just from one little neighborhood. Hmm. So people looking for parking spots. That's all. So what I'm hearing, if it's if it's metered and if it's in a, let's say, a more desirable location, then the metered parking would be more expensive. Right. Which might um, then influence uh, uh, people from not necessarily parking there all day. They would have other alternatives. They might walk. So we pay a big price when we when we offer this kind of free parking in the city. Um, But it's not just about parking. Right. I mean, because your book explains how. Uh, current parking codes li- limit the creation of affordable housing. And if we think about the current housing needs in America, I'm talking to you from Miami, and we have an extreme deficit of affordable and workforce housing right now. Tell me what the connection is between parking and affordable housing. So the other thing that I hope that listeners will take away about from this conversation about parking, number one, takes up a lot of space. Number two, it costs a lot of money to build. And this might, this feels surprising because I think for reasons we've already discussed, it's among the least charismatic spatial uses known to man and feels very much like a lowest common denominator, last thing left after the apocalypse or after the downtown is abandoned, uh, these parking lots, right? But to build parking from scratch, um, surface lot, you know, you might be spending five to $10,000 a space not including obviously the cost of land. And then when you get into structured garages, the median space in a garage in the United States this year costs about $27,000, And then underground parking is probably twice that on average. And then when you get into high cost cities, all those costs double. So you want to build parking in a structured garage in Boston, where I am, that's probably going to set you back $60,000, $70,000 a spot. So when we talk about the provision of parking in housing, which feels like a really attractive idea that every uh, house or apartment building ought to come with a bunch of parking spaces included to try and relieve pressure on uh, street parking and other parking resources. 
what we're actually talking about is forcing builders uh, and, and therefore forcing the eventual tenants and buyers of those units to bear the cost of that parking, which, as I just explained, can be really, really high. And this is particularly important when we talk about affordable housing. So there's a government accountability office study of LIHTC, low-income housing tax credit projects in California and Nevada, that concluded that structured parking that is often required by law to accompany those projects can add 27% onto the total project cost. So that means that people who move into those buildings are paying 20%, 27% more money um, than they would otherwise just for a couple of parking spaces. And, and some of them may not even drive or they may not own two cars per household. Um, so it's a massive expense that really as, as tenants and buyers, we don't have a choice, right? A lot of this is required by law. And so it goes right into the project. And not only does this build into the project costs, um, but it also changes the types of projects that get built, right? Because uh, again, this combination of parking, eating up space and eating up money um, really contorts the type of thing that you're able to do, especially on a small lot, right? If you're a builder who's got a lot that's got, you know, 35, 45 street of, uh, feet of street frontage, and you're trying to fit um, 12 parking spaces on there to go along with your six unit building, you're really limiting already the the ways that you're able to use that that property. Um, and I think you actually can watch this happen in American architecture as we begin to require more and more projects include parking is the traditional forms that we associate with the American city of the 19th and early 20th century begin to disappear in part because of zoning, but also very much because of all these parking requirements where even where the zoning would permit um, a more old fashioned uh, kind of thickly textured kind of urbanism, the parking requirements make that kind of building impossible. So what I'm hearing in a way is that the more radical um, kind of position is to also uh, kind of it doesn't lie necessarily with the architects because by the time that the architect uh, is working on a site, they're working oftentimes for a developer in the case of housing, but they're also having to work with an existing zoning code. So maybe very meaningful changes need to happen in terms of zoning uh, regulations that are altered to not make the parking a requirement. Would you say that that's the case or? Yep. I do think that is the case. Now, Miami presents an interesting case because Miami had, um, Miami has uh, a zoning code that in a lot of places um, would permit uh, two or three units on a parcel, but you have to include an enormous number of parking spaces. And a few years ago, the city did a trial program where they said, all right, what if we permitted some of these lots to not include parking? And what they got were um, a bunch of basically infill style townhouse developments, um, which basically uh were engineered with the idea in mind that you know what if the tenants of these units want parking spaces they can go and find them they can park their car in the street or they can rent the space in a garage but we want to give them the choice about whether they own a car how many cars they own and how they choose to park those based on what makes sense for them financially to require that that um that that parking cost be bundled into the price of the unit is um is both taking away people's you know opportunity to choose whether they want to pay for a garage or not and, and it's not really fair to the many tens of millions of people in this country who don't drive or don't own cars and uh so yeah i think this is a it's a big part of the modern zoning code and i think one that's um that ought to di disappear and of course it's only a part of the way that zoning um constrains our ability to meet our housing needs um, but it's a big hidden factor. And even in places that now have relatively um, lenient zoning, if you don't take away that parking requirement, you're going to end up with um, a style of building that puts the parking space first. And I think you hear that from architects often, you know, they come out of architecture school and they think they're going to put their pretty little designs right down on a parcel and they haven't been told that the first thing that happens when you approach a new parcel is, can I park it? And how do I park it? And everything else follows from there. Yes, form follows parking, right? Um, As Don would say. Yes, form follows parking. Um, I mean, I, I think it also opens up and 
this is what I think is pretty fascinating about parking because on the onset, it's not, again, as we talked about, not the, um, it, it doesn't seem to be the richest subject, but actually when you discuss parking, you're in inevitably going to talk about housing. When you talk about housing, you're going to talk about choices and prices. But on top of that, you're also going to have to think about, um, you know, in a city like Miami, unlike a city like New York, for instance, we don't have a robust public transit network, right? So um, one of the arguments is you might not be able to get where you need to go, right? And so then that starts to put into question how we even develop our neighborhoods, right? And we need to move away from these single use neighborhoods and we need to move towards a more mixed use environment. But maybe we can dwell on the question of parking and its relationship to traffic, I guess, a little bit uh, longer because again, in your book, you write that parking creates traffic and not the other way around. So if cities want to reverse this, they need to reform the way they provide parking. And I was wondering if you could maybe say a few things about this, um, because I think for many, this might seem a little bit counterintuitive. Yeah, of course. I, and I think it is it is counterintuitive. And in fact, it defies the hopes and beliefs of the mid-century planners who decided that American cities should include all this parking. Because I think the original thought was that traffic in large part, as I mentioned before, is often the result of people looking for scarce parking. And when the parking is free, for example, and a lot of people want to park in a certain place, you do end up with traffic as people circle the block over and over again, looking um, for those scarce parking places. Now, of course, that particular situation can be remedied by charging for the parking and uh, charging a market clearing price so that people don't have to look and look and look, and they just decide where the parking is cheap enough um, that it suits their needs. But at a larger level, the decision to acquire all this parking is basically a fertility drug for cars. And so when you think about parking and traffic, the actual way it works at a city level is that the more parking you provide, the more traffic you will have. And uh, this is true at the level of homes where studies after study after study has shown that the more parking that's included in the home or apartment building, um, the more uh, the more likely the residents of that building will be to own cars or to drive them. It's also true at the level of office buildings, where when an office provides free parking for its employees, they increase the uh, share of employees uh, driving to work uh, considerably um, versus offices that, for example, uh, charge for parking or offer uh, employees some sort of um incentive uh, not to drive. So, you know, both of those things are, are true, but even we've seen studies that at the city level demonstrate that the more parking a certain city built during the 1970s and 80s, the more people drove during the 80s and 90s. So there is this actual cause and effect that happens between parking and driving. And I heard this as well from a <clears throat> city council staffer in Chicago who told me what he often hears at neighborhood meetings is um, that they're People's number one concern is traffic and their number one request is parking. And he said, you have to understand those two things are at cross purposes. The more parking you build, the more traffic you're going to get. Because as every new resident comes in with two parking spaces per apartment and they own two cars, those two cars are eventually going to make their way onto the street at rush hour and people are going to be running errands in them and so forth. So um, if you want to think about how to reduce traffic, especially, for example, in a downtown, parking is actually the control lever that you have available to you as a city planner. And I think people do get upset about that when they see that parking has become more expensive, for example. But that's about as clear um, a line as you have between um, a sort of policy you can implement and and people's choice to drive, right, is increasing the cost of driving and not even increasing really, but revealing the cost of driving since so much of it is already subsidized. So basically not making it so easy in essence uh, to have it uh, and therefore people think twice about it to your, to your point about the offices, right? I mean, if, if you get free parking as part of your office or if you have to pay for it, if you have to pay for it, you're probably going to think twice or you're going to carpool. So it's a kind of the ease of the parking. That- yeah. I, I, you know, I hate to, I hate to frame it as like, um, we're going to have to make driving and parking more difficult to see progress. I, I think there's a lot of stuff here that is really low hanging fruit in terms of parking reform that can achieve benefits that actually everybody likes. Um, 
one of the big ones for offices is you don't even have to charge people for the parking at the office. But some cities and states have begun to require offices to offer people who don't drive to work some sort of equivalent prize if they don't drive and they don't use that free office parking. And this is called parking cash out. And the Federal Highway Administration did a study of this. So let's say like me and you work in the same office. You drive, you get free parking. I decide not to drive. The office has to offer me something because I'm not using that free parking that you're using. And often this takes the form of a, just a cash prize. They just say, all right, you get another 150 bucks a month because you're not using up this parking that we pay for. And just making offices um, give their employees that choice. Uh, the Federal Highway Administration projects this could, if it were enacted at, at a citywide level in every place of business, would reduce traffic in big cities by about 10%. Just, just, yeah. just that policy. I mean, that's a great example, but I guess it's like the attitude of the carrot versus the stick, right? Um, where you basically- that's an example, right? That'd be the carrot there, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then, but, but the stick. There's something to be said for the stick as well. Um, I think people often say uh, you can't put, we can't have a more, um, we can't have dense infill housing here. We can't have more people um, moving to this neighborhood. We can't have a new restaurant open in this neighborhood, et cetera, because there isn't enough parking. And we can't do those things until transit is provided. And there's this feeling that there's this kind of transit is this white knight that's going to come in and whisk people out of their cars. And suddenly the city will be delivered from its parking problem. But this is actually not the way transit works in real life. The way transit works in real life is that people don't use transit unless there's a parking problem. There is no reason in the United States not to drive everywhere you need to be unless it's challenging to park. And so the places where transit thrives are the places where parking is difficult. And so if you want your transit to succeed, you actually do need to reform your urban environment in a way that makes parking scarce. And that that has a number of other benefits besides getting people on transit and reducing traffic. But um, but that is an important precursor. You can't have good transit um, until it becomes a difficult place to park, because as long as it's easy to park, no one's going to ride the bus. Yeah. What, what about city officials or, um, you know, let's say city governments that argue that, um, I guess this would apply to both public and private sector, but that parking is a high source of revenue for cities, actually. Mm. And, and this can be beneficial. Uh, but you're in your book, you write that you believe that this um, it's actually a bad or at least a broken system, right? So it is a source of revenue, but maybe you can imp- unpack this a little bit for us um, because y- you believe it's it's actually a broken system or at the very least a bad system. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's two separate things going on, but they both stem. Let's just get one thing out of the way first. Cities have rarely in the last 60, 70 years thought carefully about parking as a valuable and important resource and as an important part of managing the urban environment. That's the first thing. There, To the extent they had any thought about it at all, it was just that we need as much of it as possible and we need it all to be free because otherwise everybody's going to go to the suburbs and go to a mall. Unfortunately, if you're a city and you're trying to compete with the suburbs on the basis of your parking availability, you're going to find it very hard to compete. The suburbs are always going to have better parking, cheaper parking, et cetera. And so I think that strategy of trying to emulate suburban parking standards has proved to be a failure. And in fact, most places where you go and it is super easy to park, there's a correlation, I say an inverse correlation between how easy it is to park and how fun it is to be there. And that's not an accident, right? I mean, it's sort of like, you know, the way economists would think about traffic congestion. It illustrates that you're operating at a place with a lot of dense economic activity. And the same is true of it being hard to find parking. Now, as far as the the pricing of parking is managed and and, and the way the parking is managed as a as a source of municipal revenue, for too long, cities have been reluctant to raise meter prices. Um, and this is because it's very politically controversial and it's perceived as a cash grab. Um, but uh, if you were, if you refuse to raise the price of meters in a place where parking is really, really hard to find, 
what you're essentially doing is forcing people who drive to that place to park illegally because there isn't enough parking. And so a lot of the ways this policy has worked out for cities is the meter revenue stays flat, but the fine revenue goes way, way up because it's impossible to find a legal place to park. And uh, as far as drivers go, you know, I'm not sure if they pay more in fines on a one one on one basis. I suspect there's different types of drivers who calculate differently whether it makes sense to give up park illegally, circle and circle looking for a spot that's legal, et cetera. Um, but the bottom line is for big cities, they make more money from fines than they do from fees. They make more money from illegal parking tickets than they do from the meter revenue itself. And to me, this shows the system that is punishment oriented, designed around making money rather than just being designed around intelligently managing this resource. So I would like to see a shift in that direction. And sometimes that does mean higher meter prices, um, but that would come in concert with lower fines for illegal parking because the goal should be um, to make it possible for people to find a space, but make it possible at a price um, that, that, you know, that ensures that there's enough space for everybody who wants to come downtown. Um, So I think that's, that's, that's an important shift. And I think the other one is that like, you know, what we're seeing with the new technology for a long time, there's been this, uh, unfortunate situation where you have to sort of guess how much parking you need and put it in the meter. And then if you come out early, there's no reward for you for leaving early. You don't get your money back. And obviously if you're wrong on the other, in the other direction, you pay a big fine. And sometimes you have to run out of your doctor's appointment or whatever to drop quarters in the meter, which is a huge pain in the butt. And so these new apps make it possible to more finely keep track of how much parking you need and pay for it. And I think that's a step in the right direction, right? I think cities should be thinking about how can we get people to, how can we make paying for parking the most user-friendly experience possible rather than the system almost being designed to get people in trouble, right? Like it should be a collaborative system. And I think that's beginning to happen, but there's a lot more work to be done there because ultimately, you know, in a perfect world, in a world where everybody reads my book, um, people who drive would recognize that there's something in it for them when the parking costs money. And that's both because that paid parking has made it possible for them to find the parking space they need without circling and circling. But it's also because that money uh, that's raised by the city through those parking meters can pay for important improvements. And uh, a lot of the times it just goes into the general fund. But I think as a political tactic, it would be smart. This is another of Don Shoup's big ideas to spend that money on local improvements. And you see this in in some places where the parking meter revenue will go towards, you know, street trees or furniture or what have you. But there are also more ambitious possibilities, right? Like Boulder, Colorado spends all its municipal parking revenue downtown on transit passes for all the municipal employees. And so in that sense, uh, you're paying for parking and what are you paying for? You're paying for somebody else not to drive downtown. And so in that sense, yes, you're paying for it, but it's also making your life a little easier because it's taking another car off the street. Hmm. I mean, al- along these lines, you know, you talked about much of the revenue being um, being generated because of illegal parking. I mean, you also made the argument in the book that a lot of this commercial parking structure can lead to corruption. And you you have a few of these entertaining stories in the book about this. Um, I wonder if you have any favorites that you could share, maybe one with our listeners. Um, sure. Well, one of the things that there must be said about parking, and we talked earlier about the the moment in the 50s when the federal government makes a big investment in uh, automobile infrastructure and urban expressways and all that, but they never built parking because they didn't really think of it as being somehow part and parcel with that investment in the freeways. And so cities ended up either um, operating their own um, big downtown garages sometimes, but often they just uh, let the private sector take responsibility for providing the parking. So we ended up with these um, big commercial garage operators in downtowns. And um, those have long been a a kind of hotspot for um, corruption and stealing. Or, or they were for a long time because they were a cash business, right? 
And downtowns are one of the few places where people actually will be compelled to pay for parking. And most of the country, obviously, the parking is free most of the time. Um, and that meant that you had guys working minimum wage at these garages who were dealing with potentially thousands and thousands of dollars in cash being stuffed in a box every day right in front of them. And so you can see the uh, temptation perhaps to uh, skim a little bit off the top because how do you even keep track of how many cars are parked in a garage? It's not like um, a widget factory where you can measure how many units have been produced and shipped and sold. Um, you're selling space by time. And so it's all very fungible. And one of my favorite stories about um, theft at a commercial garage took place at the Philadelphia airport, where um, obviously airport parking is uh, nobody's favorite topic. It's it's the largest source of it's the largest source of single source of revenue for some airports. Like actually, they make more money from the parking than they do from the whole flying thing, um, which is something you should think about when you wonder why there's no efficient, fast transit connection to the airport. Um, it's possibly because the airport authority has a vested financial interest in everybody driving there. The Philadelphia airport, like many airports, people would come and they would park for six, seven days at a time and they would produce pretty large, um, you know, pretty, there would be a pretty hefty ticket at the time they left. And what these guys at the airport realized was nobody really knew which cars had been parked for six or seven days the people who were coming back from their flights expected upon leaving the garage to pay $100 um, for the days they'd been parked there. But they printed fake tickets. And the fake tickets said, basically, this car has been parked here for four hours. And so um, every time one of those cars left the garage, they would give them $100 in cash. Um, and they would take the, the real ticket that said they'd been there for seven days, and they'd put that in their pocket. And they'd take the fake ticket that said they'd been there for four hours and feed that into the system. And obviously a four hour parking charge is different than a seven day parking charge. And they would pocket that difference. And this went on for years and there were dozens of people involved and they stole millions and millions of dollars. And this was only, you know, one example among many, and I'm sure there's many more that never yeah. made it into the news reports. Well, it's there. And you outlined several of them in the book. So for those who haven't read the book, I, uh, these are pretty interesting characters and anecdotes. Um, Towards the conclusion of the book, um, though, Henry, you, and this is also what I enjoyed about it, you not only lay out this kind of history and talk about these kind of cast of characters, but you do outline a possible path forward, at least from a policy perspective, to develop a less car-centric built environment. Um, so could you highlight some of your observations with our listeners? Yeah, we've already talked about a couple of them. And I think, you know, properly managing street parking is a big one. Um, and re reforming the zoning code so that people have freedom of choice when they decide uh, whether they want to live in a place with parking or not is, is another one. The big thing that's happening right now also, obviously, is um, a rethinking in some places about the street and what the street is for and who the street belongs to. And I think we saw inklings of that during the pandemic when restaurants began to open up um, street patios outside of their restaurants in what had formerly been parking spaces. And I think that was the kind of beginning of a realization that all of this urban parking um, doesn't need to be parking. It's public real estate. It's public right of way. And if we were to assign, if we were to put a price on it, and use it for anything other than parking, it would certainly fetch more money than it does as parking because people's willingness to pay for parking is very, very low. And so I think what this opens up is the possibility that um, a lot of this parking, uh, particularly curb parking in busy neighborhoods, could be used for other things. And the restaurant um, seats were, were sort of just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, I think in more progressive cities, you've begun to see cities that that are thinking about adapting the climate, and they're thinking about how can we um, how can we account for stormwater flooding, right? Which has become a bigger and bigger issue with um, our uh, intensifying climate change uh, juiced rainstorms, and so 
one of the answers is maybe you take some of that asphalt and some of that concrete that has made our cities so impermeable to water and you begin to turn that into green space that can hold water before uh before those storms flood over overflow the the sewers and, and flood people's basements and uh similarly i think you're thinking about cities adapting to heat and thinking all right well we know that all this asphalt and concrete is a major contributor to the urban heat island effect. So maybe we could do something where we could plant trees in parking spaces. And then you're seeing cities thinking about parking in terms of public space and saying, all right, well, um, could we, uh, you know, turn this little this little block into a park or a seating area or potentially a uh, a mode of transportation for people to get around some other way than cars? Because I think when you start to envision this, there is a moment where you say, okay, well, that all sounds nice, but people need a place to park. And uh, I think one of the big takeaways that I've I've had as a reporter reporting this book is there is one the biggest mistake you can make is to think that the parking demand is fixed, that whatever the city is, whatever the use is, whatever kind of business it is, whatever kind of apartment it is, it's always going to require X amount of parking. But in fact, that's not the case. Parking demand is very flexible. It it, it responds to um, cues, uh, market cues, right? Like pricing, which we've already talked about. But it also responds to cues in the urban environment. And so if you make um, environments where people feel comfortable not driving, they'll stop driving. And they'll take that opportunity to get on foot and make trips some other way. And this is possible even in places that feel car-centric because – when you look up the data, the travel, travel data on the United States, you find that half of all trips in the United States are under three miles. And that's a distance that could very easily be managed some other way than in a giant SUV, even if it's in a golf cart or in an electric bike or whatever. But that only happens if you begin to reform the urban environment. You make the streets safer, you make the urban environment feel more attractive, and part of that comes from decreasing the parking. And so I think there is a virtuous cycle you can unlock there where the land use becomes more friendly to pedestrians, the transportation becomes more friendly to pedestrians. And in turn, you see people decide, you know what, I'm not going to drive today. I'm going to leave the car at home. Yeah, I mean, I was actually really interested in in um, researching for this conversation because you you just mentioned about the trip generation that more than half of it, right, is less than three miles. But if, if, um, if I'm correct about this um also more than half of those are about a mile right so i think one of the uh, other points that you make in the conclusions of the book is also um a kind of mixed use environment talking about that immediate neighborhood unit right because if in fact that data is correct which you've been you're the expert and you've done the research um you know we have half of them at half of the trip generation in america is 3 miles or less but half of that is only a mile or less that means that if I'm always focused on that long commute to work, right? The one that takes me two hours, the one that I'm really, you know, gets me angry, right? But actually there's probably all this host of smaller commuting that's happening, right? If I need to go uh, buy a carton of milk or I got to drop my child at school or, and so what would happen if those could be walkable? The only way for it to be walkable, which means we would need less cars and less parking is if we had some of these mixed uses in these neighborhoods. Um, is- and I, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that's so that's so so important. I think um, people often assume that the question is a binary one about whether to own a car or not to own a car. But in fact, the median household in the United States owns two point two cars. So the change here that's possible is about change at the margins. It's about moving from two point two to two point one to two to one point nine, et cetera, and seeing what kind of urban environment evolves as those rates begin to decline. Um, you make a good point about commutes. This is really important. There's this fixation on the commute, like I cannot get to my job or access the labor market without a car. And that may well be true. But commutes only make up about one in six or one in seven of every trip uh, of all the trips, right? So to focus on the commute um, as being the be all end all of how we're going to design our transportation policy is to ignore all these other trips. And it's also a very um, well, it's it's it centers a particular type of person in the imagination when we make transit decisions, and that person is often a man. Uh, it's a man between the ages of 
25 and 55. And, uh, and it's somebody often who's, uh, at least as far as planners are concerned, going to a downtown office job. And that's not even most jobs, let alone most trips. And I think you're right that thinking about the neighborhood is the important thing. And this is a big, hot concept in urban design right now, whether whether it goes by the name of neighborhood unit or 15-minute city or um, call it what you will, but this idea that uh, even in the suburbs, people should have the services and the amenities they need within a short walk of their doorstep, I think is a very attractive one to people. And it's one that suggests more opportunity rather than less. And the prospect of a less car-centric environment, meaning more choice and more freedom rather than less. And I think that is a really attractive political idea. um, And it's also just the reality of what this would mean. And now there often is, though, a real trade-off that happens involving parking. And I'll give you a very uh, concrete example of this. I was just talking to somebody in Seattle about a a middle school that was being built in a neighborhood. And I think when we think about neighborhood trips, the trip to school should be first in mind, right? This is exactly the kind of trip that ought to be possible on foot, on bike, et cetera. Um, And the dilemma they're facing at this school is that they haven't built enough parking spaces And the reason they haven't built enough parking spaces is because they chose a small infill site that was really well located at the core of the neighborhood. And they're being sued over this. And it's exactly that kind of decision-making process that leads to schools being sited at the periphery of the neighborhood, out by the highway, where they have a site that's big enough to acquire all this parking and not have to go through some contested community process. But guess what? If you put the school out there, then no one's ever going to walk there. Everyone's going to drive there and you're right back where you started. So we're coming to the end uh, of the interview. We've got a couple more minutes and I wanted to be asked to be able to ask you at least one question about the future of technology and its impact on parking. Before I ask you my final questions, I ask everyone what their favorite city is and why. So, but I'm curious, um, what impact do you think that electrification of vehicles will have on these transportation networks and by extension our parking um, this, of course, the electrification of the fleet is different than the self-driving and autonomous vehicles. And I realize we've only got a couple of minutes to do this, and this could be an entire episode. But can you give me some of your, you know, big takeaways on this? Um, is any of this, how is this going to work um, moving forward? And how is it going to impact our needs for parking? Sure. I think we're going to be dealing with um, the prospect of autonomous vehicles for several years still. So we can we can circle back in five or 10 years on, on that subject. But the EVs obviously are a huge deal right now. And the big question is, people won't buy EVs unless they have a reliable place to charge them. And even for people who think that EVs will not save us and that the urban environment ought to be less autocentric, no matter how the cars are powered, we have to acknowledge that the EV is a pretty positive change from the gas-powered vehicle in terms of the amount of, uh, obviously, uh, the big picture climate in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, but also in terms of local air pollution. So um, we have a strong incentive to make it possible for people to buy EVs. But if that requires charging, what do we do about the one in three American households that do not have their own garage, right? Where are they going to charge their EVs? Is it going to happen at the curbside? And if so, who's going to provide that infrastructure? Is the city going to pay for it? Is that Does that mean another gigantic government subsidy for car owners? Um, if not, are private companies willing to take on that, uh, that challenge, that infrastructure, and the cost of building it? So far, I've heard from them that it's not profitable unless the city pays for it. And so that raises the prospect of Uh, simply just where all these chargers are going to be built. I mean, you walk around an urban neighborhood today, and I'm sure you see it in Miami. I see it in Boston. You see the extension cords coming out of the window or running across uh, under some duct tape along the sidewalk. And um, I used to laugh at that and say, surely that cannot be how we're going to solve this problem. Um, But as the years go on, I think, you know what, (laughs) maybe that is, maybe that is the best we can do. Um, But it is a, it's a, it's a real urgent question, right? Because if we don't figure out how to give urbanites access to the electric vehicle transition, we're leaving behind precisely the neighborhoods that have been most damaged by all 
uh, the harms of um, of in, in, in internal combustion engines, right? And we're leaving them subject to that damage for years to come because we haven't made it possible for them to transition. Indeed. You know, we, we may have a lot of um, kind of government officials or city leaders. Um, is there any shining star out there in America? Somebody's doing it right? Um, a city that, that is doing some interesting things um, that we should in, be looking at? In terms of EV parking? Well, maybe, or just generally in terms of parking, kind of trying to reverse the car culture in your in your extensive research. Is there somebody we should be looking at? Well, the exciting thing is that there are lots and lots of cities that have decided that zoning for parking doesn't make sense, have decided that they need to start charging for the best parking and sorting people according by uh, according to how long they need to drive. So I would suggest that if you're interested in this topic, you check out the Parking Reform Network. Awesome. The park, that, and that that's a site that is a kind of gateway to a lot of the exciting reforms that are going on now. And I hate to just pick a, pick yep. one because there's so many great things going on. No, I think that's a great resource. So in a sentence or two, Henry, what is, what is your favorite city and why? My favorite city is, is Paris. And I think that's not a particularly original choice, but I just think it, it cannot be beat for the uh, the sheer density of exciting things to see and eat and do. Um, it's often said that it's one of the densest cities in the world, and that comes with some real exciting benefits if you uh, happen to be walking down the street. Yeah, well, never a bad choice, Paris. Thank you, Henry, so much for taking your time out of your busy schedule to join us today. And for those of you who have not read the book, um, Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World, I think it's a must read. Um, next week, I'm going to be joined by Reed Kroloff, um, the former editor-in-chief of Architecture Magazine and Dean of the Illinois Institute of Technology College of Architecture. We're going to be talking about message and medium, the power to connect through design. So do not miss the conversation. I look forward to connecting next Friday. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week. 